Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. My guest today has such a wide range of interests, experiences, and expertise that it's hard to know where to start. But perhaps I can sum it up best by saying Dr. Mike Hoagland is someone who pushes the envelope in medicine, looking for ways to make things work better. Among the points of interest, he was a very early adopter in developing a 100% telemedicine practice, well before COVID, and he advises startups and telemedicine companies in best practices. He's also been deeply involved in clinical applications of microbiome science and worked for a leading company in the space. And if that were not enough, he also spent time as a policy analyst at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and was clinical director of the Dr. Oz Show. Now, Mike and I go way back. We actually met when he was working for the Dr. Oz Show in Philadelphia when he was running something called the 15-Minute Physical, where him and Dr. Oz partnered to screen thousands of people through a 15-Minute Physical. And then we became really good friends and launched at TED Med back in 2013 something called the Smartphone Physical, which was adapted based off of that a very early adoption of digital health technologies and doing a complete physical exam using various smartphone gadgets. So Mike, it's so good to have you on the show finally. Great to be here, Shiv. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So obviously I know a lot about your background that you went to Penn Med, you went into emergency medicine. Can you give us a bit of more background on yourself for our audience about what got you interested in medicine in the first place and then how you've had such a wide ranging and interesting career within medicine? Sure. I, uh, initially wanted to be a doctor all my life. You know, I always liked science and helping people, teaching people, but I kind of got more into technology in high school and kind of got the bug of bioengineering and ended up majoring in that. But once I started looking at uh, some internships where I looked into uh, working at a hospital and did some research with some surgeons, I was doing rounds with them and realized I really didn't want to just make widgets, but I wanted to really help people you know, using technology. And so I wanted to directly heal people. So decided to do med school, but still keep my foot in the technology space. So took some time off before med school to work in management consulting uh, with Accenture and helped at that time. It was really important to get everyone online. All the doctors and hospitals need to be online with their electronic health record system. So that was the big thing back then. So I spent some time in that space, uh, as you mentioned, working for the government, coming up with policy to help doctors and hospitals adopt these technologies and took time off from med school about three times to pursue really just my interests. So I really just kind of followed the things that were interesting to me. So first worked for the government in health IT policy, uh, took some time off to work for the Dr. Oz show, as you mentioned, and then for my senior thesis in med school, I worked at a, another startup uh, called Practice Fusion at the time that is a electronic medical record for smaller practices. So now I you know, continue to maintain a clinical practice and still be involved in the, the health IT digital health space as well. Yeah. And so actually going into telehealth, um, you know, you were a very early adopter, I think, among physicians uh, back when I think telehealth companies were still trying to get people to use their services, where if, if a telehealth company could get 1% utilization among members of a particular insurer, it was successful. And obviously COVID flipped that script. So can you tell us a bit more about what got you into telehealth and how you've structured your practice and then what the last two years of COVID have done to your practice or telehealth in general? Sure. So telehealth is really an interesting thing because it's been around 
in, in a sense, for a long time, if you think back to the early 20th century, there's been telephones and faxes and, and uh, pagers and all those things you could argue are telehealth. But it's really kind of how we view it now and how we're using the technology that we've had for a while to, to deliver patient care. I mean, we finally have people realizing that it allows the clinician and patient that flexibility. So I like to do a lot of different things, as you mentioned, as, as a lot of doctors like to do. So I think telemedicine allows me to keep a variety in my career. I, I can see a variety of different patients. I can see patients all over the country and you know, practice real medicine. So it's been a way that I've been able to make my life more flexible. I've certainly been you know, in the trenches of burnout in the past and you know, having the flexibility to be able to see patients when it's, I'm at my best and when I'm at home, I'm able to be home with my family. It's just a great setup for, for me to be successful as well and my patients benefit. And I think a lot of patients and doctors realize that that quality can be delivered with that flexibility, that efficiency um, through, through telehealth. So the thing that I think really changed with COVID was the acceptance of, of telehealth. I think patients and, and doctors alike found that the pandemic unblocked our ability to see those patients that we couldn't bill. So in other words, if you can't bill for something, then the healthcare system is probably not going to do it. So uh, the fact that Medicare relaxed certain in-person and documentation requirements that uh, allowed telehealth to happen, it, it just overnight kind of became a thing. Uh, and we went from like 13,000 Medicare telehealth calls before the pandemic to over 1.2 million in April of early pandemic. So it really was kind of overnight. Patients kind of saw that the sausage, uh, how it was made to some extent, because they were seeing that, you know, telemedicine wasn't so bad. They didn't really have to go to the doctor's office to get a blood pressure check. They didn't have to park and wait in the waiting room just to get a, a refill of the medicine they take every day. So, you know, the healthcare system is loath to change. And if you take away their ability to bill, they're going to change. That's probably the only thing that will get them to change quickly. And so I think that's really part of the catalyzation that took effect with COVID. Definitely. And, you know, some of that stuff will be hopefully permanent. Uh, it's very consumer centric and hopefully some of the cost savings uh, or efficiencies can, can bleed into the healthcare system. Can you paint a picture of exactly like how you run your own practice? You know, what does an average week in the life of Dr. Hoagland look like as far as how you balance your telehealth patients, you know, what hours you're on? Um, do you talk to other physicians for consults here and there? Like, I think our audience would be very interested to know like what a real practice physician like yourself looks like. Sure. So I see sort of two different sets of patients at this point. I have a panel of patients in my telepsychiatry practice that are my patients. So I, I hold on to them when I see them long-term. I've had some of those patients for almost four years and they are you know, able to set up time with me in between the times that I am not on a shift for my other practice. So I also do some uh, tele-urgent care. And in that practice, I sign up for shifts just like you would in an urgent care or an ER. And so I just sort of see who comes in the door. I have a queue of patients. I see their chief complaint. And I do usually four to eight hours in a shift. Um, so if I do four hours in the morning and then maybe another four hours in the afternoon, I'll have a bunch of 
15 or 30 minute spots to fit in the psych patients in between. Um, those are usually 30 minute initial visits and 15 minute follow-ups. Whereas my urgent care patients, uh, which can be just about anything, are you know, on average about eight minutes. Uh, they can be as short as a couple of minutes if they need something quick uh, or can be up to you know, 40 minutes if it's something serious. So, um, so I set it up so that I practice both most weeks, do about uh, 10 to 20 hours of tele-urgent care and about 20 hours or so of telepsychiatry per week. And then, you know, my other time I spend consulting, working with other startups who are trying to set up telemedicine practices and companies. So um, certainly keep busy, but it's all stuff that I really enjoy doing. And I still get a full night of sleep most nights. Yeah, that's great. And that's obviously critical. Burnout among clinicians, especially during the residency years, was very much top of mind even before COVID. COVID has made that a lot worse. So uh, maybe you can spend a, a minute talking about that issue of burnout among the clinical population. Any ideas, I mean, apart from maybe adopting physician-friendly or uh, practice-friendly things like telemedicine, um, you know, any commentary you have on on burnout and how we can address it uh, so that we can not only raise the line by training more healthcare professionals, but then keeping them in practice longer. Sure. So yeah, burnout is is an epidemic as as we all in healthcare know. And you know, I think there's a lot of different causes and, and theories as to how it became such a an epidemic, but I think there are some things that are are pretty clear. Medicine has become a lot less focused on the doctor, so to speak. So uh, which I think is good in some ways, but it's led to a lot of uh, unfortunate consequences. So with the advent of patient-centered care and you know, making sure that pain was the fifth vital sign in the ER and uh, making sure that customer service from the hospital standpoint was high priority, which I think is a good thing, um, we kind of lost track of what uh, the doctor's experience was. And um, it's funny because I was working for the government trying to get doctors to adopt electronic health records back in the 2008 to 2010 time frame during Obamacare. But we're now realizing that although we tried to get doctors to use the, that technology meaningfully, the systems really came out of a need to bill better. And so the systems were designed for billing. And so doctors are caught up in all these billing requirements now that we have EHRs, uh, such as the have to be a certain number of uh, physical exam components, review system components. Uh, the HPI has to talk about at least seven different things. And, you know, I think it's getting a little bit better, but for a long time, doctors were getting bogged down in billing codes and long documentation issues, uh, spending a lot of time after hours that they weren't being paid for to write notes and answer patient messages. That was all you know, in addition to what they were already doing, spending sometimes longer than they were on shift doing notes. And that just kind of leads to burnout or some will call it moral injury, where, you know, you're doing these great things for patients, but you kind of have a low sense of accomplishment. You're feeling physically exhausted, sort of like what you do doesn't really matter because you're just sort of caught in this loop of, of documentation, doing what the hospital wants, 
you know, trying to keep patients happy and healthy. And there's really no one that's that's looking out for you. And at the end of the day, you're you're still a, an employee if you're working for a hospital or or clinic or you know working on your own, trying to deal with insurance companies as a solo practice is also stressful. And having them tell you how to take care of patients, and so doctors used to have a lot of autonomy, and now we're finding ourselves to have a lot less and practices being bought up by large healthcare systems. So with all that, you know, we sort of lost track of the doctors, I think, for a few decades. And, you know, now we're seeing more doctors trying to get out of medicine. They're angry with each other. Uh, administrators are having lots of rules that are basically tamping down any new ideas that doctors might come up with. And so it's really a kind of become in a lot of ways a toxic culture and just working in that day in and day out 12 hour shifts and not really being appreciated or fairly compensated leads to you know burnout or or worse um you know sadly there's like 400 physician suicides every year so i think the wake up call is maybe finally being heard we're seeing a lot more conversation about burnout and and moral injury and it's not just doctors, it's also nurses, allied health professionals as well, who are dealing with all these stressors, not to mention that a lot of them are dealing with uh, life and death situations and seeing patients you know, die on their watch. So it's a lot for any human being. And I hope that now that telehealth has allowed somewhat of a relief valve for some clinicians who wanna add that to their practice or, or shift their practice to that, that uh, these administrators and hospitals will come up with either more flexible work environments, shifts, schedules, you know, having a more personalized schedule since there are people who like certain parts of the day or parts of the evening to work and others want to uh, you know, work a few days a month. So I think coming up with flexible work arrangements is one. Um, I don't think just having you know, yoga and cookies every other Tuesday is the way to, to solve this. I think there needs to be an actual system change where we go back to putting the clinicians first when we design new technologies. You know, doctors weren't really consulted that much historically when these EHRs came to be. So they're stuck using the system that wasn't designed for them. And, you know, I think now we're seeing a lot more doctors on the technology side. So I, I hope that with digital health, things will will get better for doctors as well. Absolutely. And you have a front receipt to being able to not only work at companies, like we mentioned a few of them, but now advise other companies that are working to add the physician voice and, and the patient voice into, into what they're building. So let's go into some of that too. You know, what are some of the uh, companies or trends that you're most excited about now? Um, and also maybe you can transition and talk a bit about the microbiome experience because everything else was very heavy tech and then microbiome obviously a lot of tech there too but very much going into like hard science type work direct to consumer type microbiome work and so and you know you've done a lot of consulting for microbiome companies as well so you know maybe bring us up to speed and what you're most excited about in digital health telehealth what companies you're advising and also the microbiome aspects yeah i think a couple things uh one is that you know, I think we're just seeing a lot more measurement-based care in various specialties, even in, in psychiatry, where we're 
you know, traditionally was very qualitative is now becoming more quantitative. And we're seeing that in diabetes care and we're seeing that in, you know, obesity care and even surgery where you know, things are being measured longitudinally uh, more readily and with the technology that's now available so that we can actually show objectively certain outcomes, seeing more precisely whether a treatment is working. You know, we're seeing more uh, precision medicine being used more. So even looking at someone's genetics, you can find out what medications might be more appropriate for them from a, a psychiatry or in various other specialties as well. So that's something that's definitely exciting. You know, I think worldwide, I'm excited about sort of more of the world getting more access to the internet uh, to be very basic. You know, I, I think um, a, a quarter of the world at least doesn't have access to sufficient computers, internet and email. Um, so I think that we're gonna basically see the smartphone come full circle and come back to the smartphone being the place where a lot of people in the world are getting their healthcare. So uh, I think the fact that we can take advantage of, of that technology, something that you know pretty much everyone in the world has some sort of access to, you know, it's going to really bring healthcare to a lot more people. It reminds me of the um, saying that um, there's two sayings, actually, this reminds me of one is Amara's law, which is people tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the short term and underestimate the impact in the long term. And so I mentioned this on the Dave Albert interview, a mutual friend of ours who started LiveCore, where, you know, it was kind of that 2011 to 2014 period when we were doing smartphone physical where digital health, telehealth, all these things were very exciting, remote patient monitoring, a lot of investment, but then that zone of disillusionment from 2014 or 2015 to 2018 or 19 even, where you know there was no CARES Act, there was you know no real incentive, people, the system wasn't adapted to, to change. And then obviously COVID came around and you, know, you had years of advance in, in a matter of weeks. Um, so that's one. And then the second is if you stick around long enough, your timing is perfect. It's another saying I like to, to hear where, you know, LiveCore and many other digital health companies we know just lasted long enough for them to ride the wave that eventually broke, which is great for them. Um, obviously, we knew a lot of really smart, awesome companies back in the day that were pioneering this. I mean, I think about the Zio head the ECG mask that people would wear when they're sleeping to monitor sleep quality, which was a wonderful idea, tech maybe a little early, definitely early, and then, you know, kind of failed. But now like there's so many new sleep tech gadgets out there. So super interesting. And, you know, is the microbiome in that space? Like where, where do you see us with microbiome? Yeah, that's such a good way to put it. Yeah. I think it follows that exactly. Shiv. The, uh, the time when we were doing the smartphone physical, like everyone, was excited about it. You know, there was the, the Surgeon General, there was several celebrities that we got to do physicals on, uh, as you know, and, you know, even heads of insurance, health insurance companies were, were excited. But then it kind of came down to the movement of information and HIPAA, you know, which often comes up to, to shut things down quite a bit. You know, I think HIPAA is, is often misapplied, unfortunately, sometimes as, as a way to just kind of shut something down. Um, you know, it has one P and, and two A's, you know what the P stands for? No, what does it stand for? You might think it's privacy, right? But it's, it's actually a portability. So HIPAA, you know, initially was really intended to get information moving, not to sort of silo it. And, and you know, clearly we got to have encryption and, and protect transmitting patient data. But, um, you know, HIPAA is often applied in places where it's not even relevant. 
So I think with this pandemic issue and the catalyzation of telemedicine and telehealth, the system is just more comfortable with moving patient data. Because if you think about it, your smartphone is listening to you all the time. Um, Alexa is listening to you all the time. You're in a doctor's office, so it, it's hearing you. So, um, you know, privacy is kind of an illusion to some degree. But, um, you know, I think uh, you brought up the, the microbiome is similar. Uh, back when I was in med school, it was kind of mentioned as something really interesting. And I was fascinated back then about how the the gut bacteria, we call it the gut flora back then would, you know, influence the body and digestion. And then, you know, we kind of didn't hear about it for a while, but then there was this boom in the sort of the late to mid 2000s that, or 2010s, I should say, that uh, after next generation sequencing came about, we were able to process a lot more data a lot faster in terms of genetic data. And so we saw that as an opportunity to to sequence the microbiome, which has trillions of cells uh, all over our body and in our body. There are more foreign cells, such as bacteria, fungi, protozoa, viruses, than we have in our own human body. So there are more foreign cells than, than human cells in each of our bodies. So you know, they say that every time you have a, a bowel movement, you become a little bit more human. So uh, <laughs> I never heard that saying, that's hilarious. <laughs> So uh, now we're seeing a bunch of startups and companies and, and even pharma companies very interested in the microbiome because it is essentially affecting all the systems in the body from head to toe. And the number of, you know, with the right engineering, the, the therapeutics that you could think up are, are pretty incredible. I mean, they can already have a, a microbe make gasoline. So imagine if you had microbes making insulin or whatever, molecules missing from the human body. And uh, so right now I work a lot with the, the gut brain axis, of course, which is the fact that we know that the gut affects our mood, the gut affects our anxiety, the way that we view the world in a sense. And we, we know that 95% of serotonin is produced in the gut. So a lot of people are interested and there's lots of companies looking into how to measure it and what to do about it. It's very interesting just seeing how your career has evolved, where you're really at the forefront of both these areas, telehealth, microbiome, and working to combine combine them in interesting ways through the consulting work. Um, I knew this, you know, most of our podcasts are 20 to 30 minutes long. I know we could just focus on microbiome for at least an hour to talk about that stuff. So I know we're coming up in time. So I wanted to make sure that our audience heard two things from you before we know you have to go. The, the first is, you know, again, you've had a very interesting career path going from healthcare and engineering into media, into technology, into hard science and microbiome work, government policy. You know, what advice would you give to people starting their career in healthcare right now, meeting the challenges of the COVID moment, getting involved in tech? Like what, what things would you like them to know? Or what would you tell like a young Mike Hogan too? Great question. I would say that, you know, as cliche as it is that you should do what really interests you. I think sometimes we get caught up in doing things that we think that the next step in our life wants to see you that you've done or that you do. But if you do what really interests you truly and draws your attention, then you will naturally, you know, talk to the right people. You'll, you know, research and study and read the right things and, um, you know, use the people that you know in those communities to find those opportunities to 
work for a, a company in that field, to work for someone in the government who's you know in that field. And uh, just as an anecdote, to work for the government at a really exciting time when the High Tech Act was being written and executed. I just saw in the news that uh, Dr. David Blumenthal was being appointed by Obama as the director of health IT in the office of the national coordinator for health IT. And so I just sent him a congratulatory email, just, you know, an honest email, just congratulating him and um, introducing myself. And he responded actually. And, and, you know, we've got to talking and then he invited me for a day to look at what he does. And then it turned into a job or a summer job at least. And then, um, then that, summer job led to a year long job. So a lot of it, of course, is, is luck. But I think if you truly talk to the people that interest you and keep in touch with them and you know, work hard and don't say no to opportunities that may be out of your comfort zone, um, I think that I've certainly said, said yes to things that I wasn't quite ready for, but then went there and ramped up quickly and found that you'll you'll learn uh, on the job in a lot of cases. Definitely. I mean, that's again one way we got together. And it's funny, the David Blumenthal connection, I forgot to even make. We had him on the podcast in December. Uh, now he's president of the Commonwealth Foundation. Oh, right. Wow. Uh, and so Rishi, Rishi, my co-host, who you know well, interviewed him. But yeah, I love that. Like the cold email, you know, yeah. when you operate in good faith and authentically, things just right. kind of compound and add up and you know, who, who knows what path it'll take you down. Very interesting path and very deep friendships can be developed. The other question is, what is like one final word you'd love our audience to know about you, about anything happening with COVID, healthcare in general, anything else you'd like to be able to share with our audience? Oh, wow. Um, let's see. Um, I guess to kind of get into probiotics a little bit, uh, if I had to say one thing, I would say eat more fiber. Americans don't eat enough fiber, just the, our standard American diet is just not rife with fiber for whatever reason. You know, we need 25 to 30 grams a day. It is a, a good amount, but if you eat the right number of fruits and vegetables, it's not, not that hard to do. And the reason is not just to have regular bowel movements, if you will. It's really to allow your gut microbiome to ferment that fiber into what's called short chain fatty acids, or basically these fat globules that can travel to the gut wall to heal it, can travel to the liver to make your body more insulin sensitive. And really it makes it a lot easier for your body to, to work overall. So add more fiber to your diet is probably the, the best advice I can give sort of a, a general audience as an informational advice. So that's what really is going to keep your gut microbiome healthier, even more healthy than probiotics. I like that a lot. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons we became friends early on was your interest in being able to educate you know, in health education. Uh, very early on, I know you were helping me with osmosis and thinking through that um, and taking complex and sometimes hard to talk about topics, right? Like who want to talk about bowel movements and turning them into engaging, interesting things, especially because you've done both print and also TV journalism when you were working for the Dr. Oz show. So taking these hour-long lectures, turn them into six-minute videos, turn them into 60-second soundbites or 15-second soundbites even. To be honest, um, the, the shows that had the highest ratings uh, with Dr. Oz are the ones that talk about poop and mucus. <laughs> Good to know. That never goes out of fashion. It's still top of mind for most people, it seems. That's right. 
<laughs> well, Mike, again, uh, sorry to take you over, but I really appreciate you taking the time. It was a lot of fun, Shiv. Thanks so much. It's always a, a blast with you. And I really want to thank you again for having me. Of course. And thank you for the work you do to raise the line and improve healthcare capacity uh, in so many different capacities. So with that, I'd like to thank our audience for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.